Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Well, amen. It's uh, great to be able to gather around the Word of God and to declare that all of our hope is in Jesus Christ. Is your hope in Christ this morning? Amen. Um, and it's a sure hope. It's a good hope. We're going to cover Acts 18, 23 through 19, 7 in a message that I am calling the priority of the Word or the priority of God's Word more specifically, in discipleship, the priority of God's Word in discipleship. And before we dive in, I want to pray for our time together in the Word. Would you bow with me? God, you're so good, and we are so desperate. God, we need you. We long for your presence in our lives. Lord, when When things are not as we would like, uh, when the world seems upside down, when chaos seems to surround us, Lord, there there is hope, there is joy, there's confidence, and it is in Christ and in Christ alone. And God, I I pray today that we would be reminded uh, of how we can know you, how we can feed on you, how we can derive spiritual strength and growth from you through your word, for the good of your church and the glory of Christ and the good of those who are yet to know you. God, uh, strengthen me and embolden us, your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So welcome back to the book of Acts. If you are new to North Roanoke, we typically work our way through books of the Bible. Uh, We'll be interrupting that series starting next week uh, for just four weeks. I'll tell you more about that soon. But for right now, we're in the book of Acts, and we're going to start in chapter 18, verse 23. Last week, we uh, we saw Paul complete his second missionary journey and then return to the church in Antioch. That's Antioch of Syria, the church that had sent him out uh, and from which he had been called to plant churches. So he's, he's made his way back to Antioch, and now today we're going to see Paul sort of launched back out on his third missionary journey as Luke reminds us of the priority of God's Word in the work of making disciples. You can't make disciples of Jesus without the Word that reveals Jesus. At every stage of discipleship, we need the Word of God. We never outgrow our need for God's Word. And we're going to see that in the Word this morning. At every stage of discipleship, going deep into the heart of God, evangelism, clarification of doctrine, and conversion to Christ, and all these things, the common thread that we will see this morning is the Word of God. Disciples can't be made, they can't be strengthened, they can't be sharpened, they cannot be sanctified without the Word of God. So with that in mind, would you hear with me the Word? Verse 23, and I'll just read one verse to get started. I promise we'll read more as we go. But verse 23, after spending some time there, that's, that's in Antioch, 
and that's Paul, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. You say, well, well, that wasn't much to read. What, what are you going to get out of that, Pastor? Not much, but it's important. You ready? First point of the message is this. We never outgrow our need to be strengthened in the faith. We never outgrow our need to be strengthened in the faith. The Word of God is to the, to the disciple like being upright and walking is to the human being. Every time someone is hospitalized, they break a leg, they break a hip, I don't care how old they are, in my mind, a clock immediately starts going, how long have they been laying down in this bed? Because you would be amazed what you see happen to the body in one week of inactivity and just laying around in the bed. And then you get to two weeks, and then you get to three weeks, and with every passing week, what's going on in my mind is the rehab clock. How long is it going to take for this individual to get back to where they were, if they're able ever to get back there in, at all. And, and the Word of God is like that for us. We can't just abandon the Word of God and grow in Christ or even be sustained in Christ. We need the Word. Paul, after spending time with the church in Antioch, sets out on his third missionary journey. And we know he wants to get to Ephesus, right? And back in verse 21, he says, I'm going to get there if God wills. But before he goes to Ephesus, he retraces his steps, visiting the churches in Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Pisidian Antioch. And as he returns to these churches, what is his work? He is strengthening all the disciples. How many disciples did he strengthen? All of them. Not, not, just, the, not just the teachers, right? Not just the leaders. Everyone who names the name of Christ, every single person in this room and listening online and over in the overflow in the sanctuary, everyone who has been adopted into the family of God through the blood of Christ needs to be strengthened by the Word of God. It's like an IV in your veins. It is what the Spirit of God sort of feasts on so that you can feast on the Spirit. You've got to have the Word. The word strengthen means to, to set in place or to fix something, or to firmly establish it. It's the same word that Luke uses to describe Jesus' resolve to get to Jerusalem and be crucified over in Luke 9.51. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, listen to this, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Same word. To be strengthened is the opposite of wavering. In Hebrews 10, 23, we're commanded, let us hold fast, what? The confession of our hope. That's the word of God. It's the gospel of God. Let's hang on to our confession. How? Without wavering. And if the disciples in churches that Paul started needed to be strengthened, do you get that? If these are the churches that Paul, who encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, started, and he's like, I need to go back and strengthen them. Do you all think we need to be strengthened? Because guess what? Paul didn't start this church. But praise God, we were built on the same gospel that Paul preached. And if we will labor in the word and continue in the word, we can be strengthened by the God who authored the word. Strengthening happens as a person of God brings encouragement, a reminder, or a challenge from God's word to a receptive heart. Engagement with the Word is like spiritual exercise for us. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, 
Paul commands the Thessalonians to stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by letter. Hold fast, be strengthened by the word of God. So though Paul wants to evangelize and share the gospel in Ephesus, he understands first that the churches that already existed needed to be strengthened as well. So we can take a lesson from Paul here, right? At North Roanoke, do we want to reach people? Do we want to see lost people come to saving faith in Christ? Absolutely. But we don't want to be so committed to that priority that we neglect the priority of our own strengthening. You say, well, what does that look like? It looks like churches throwing a bunch of parties all the time to have a bunch of people come to their building, but forgetting the reason they got them to come to the building in the first place. It's about the gospel. It's about Jesus Christ. And so Paul knows he's got an opportunity, a window in Ephesus. He wants to get there if God wills. But I will not neglect, Paul says, strengthening the churches who are already in place. We must do both. We must evangelize the lost and we must strengthen the saints. And none of us is beyond the need for strengthening. Starting with this guy. We must be strengthened by the word. Let's keep reading the word, verse 24 through 26. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. The second thing I want us to see this morning is that God's word, accurately explained, brings correction and clarification to believers. A right explanation of God's word brings correction and clarification to believers. In verse 24, we meet a man who, quite frankly, reminds me of Paul, right? He's ethnically Jewish, and he is eloquent or a learned man. In other words, his, his intellectual aptitude is up there, which isn't surprising because he's from Alexandria. Alexandria at the time is the second largest city in the Roman Empire, and it was, as Spencer writes, built around a massive museum and a 400,000-volume library. This was a city that liked to think. It was about being intellectual. Jewish scholars from Alexandria produced the Greek version of the Old Testament that you may have heard called the Septuagint. All right, so there's action happening in Alexandria around the Old Testament and its prophecies, and this man, Apollos, is probably in the thick of those things. And at the end of verse 24, we learn Apollos was competent in the scriptures. Now, that's an understatement. I don't know what your translation says, but that's kind of like underselling it. Literally, he was mighty in the scriptures. Man, I hope to be mighty in the scriptures one day. I'm working on it. That's, that's a good goal. How, did, how can you be described? He was mighty in the scriptures. And he had been instructed in verse 25, the way of the Lord. Before his conversion, Paul's conversion on the Damascus road, he sought to persecute Christians 
And what did he refer to them as? People of the way. John the Baptist, the great prophet and forerunner to Jesus, said that he had come in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy to prepare what? The way of the Lord. And now that Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life has come, Apollos is teaching the way, which means he's teaching about Jesus. We don't know when the gospel reached Alexandria, but as Spencer notes, there was a large community of Jews there, and there was good communication between the Jews in Alexandria and Jerusalem, which makes it likely that the gospel got to Alexandria at an early date. You say, why are you telling me this, Pastor? How in the world does Apollos know about Jesus? I don't know. There's nothing in Acts that tells us how the gospel got to Alexandria, but somehow the good news of Jesus the Messiah made it from Jerusalem to Alexandria. Apollos heard about it, and he is mighty in the scriptures, and he's been instructed in the way of the Lord. So, so get this. This is important. Apollos has more than just a firm grasp of Bible facts. He's more than just a sword drill tra- champion. Anybody do sword drill when you were a kid? Y'all are like, what in the world is that? They would, they, would, they would have kids like stand at the front and they would be like, all right, John 3.16, find it. And then, you know, there was always the nerd kid that found it first. I got it. Okay, great. And then they'd be like, find the, the faith chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. Got it. Right? So he, Apollos was more than just a Bible dork. Right? He was more than just a Bible nerd. He has saving faith in Jesus. He is born again. He's been converted by the gospel. You say, well, how, how do you know that if he's, if he's off on some things? Did you know you could be saved and be off on some stuff? Now, there's big stuff you can't be off on, <laughs> right? But he's off on a little bit. But we know, verse 25, he's fervent in spirit. How is somebody fervent in spirit? Through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And so he is, he's excited about the Word of God. He's excited about the the gospel. And verse 25 tells us that he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So he's accurate, but something's missing. Unlike Jews who rejected Jesus, Apollos, the Jew, understood that the Old Testament was a witness to the promised Messiah. In, In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul talks about the Jewish rejection of Jesus. All right? So Apollos did not reject Jesus, but what do we say of Jews who have the Old Testament, they hear about Christ, and they reject Jesus? This is what he says. To this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil covering remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But here's the good news. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When you hear of Christ and you turn to Christ and you see the alignment of the promises of the Old Testament with who Christ is, the veil is taken away and you see in a whole new way. That's Apollos. For Apollos, the veil has been removed, and and now he's fervently proclaiming Jesus the way. And yet, at the end of verse 25, we discover that he only knew the baptism of John, referring to John the Baptist. So Apollos accurately is announcing that the Messiah has come. And yet, as Peterson writes, 
his message would have been confusing and misleading if he was only offering people the baptism of John. Why do we need the baptism of John to repent and look for the Messiah if the Messiah was come, has already come? His baptism is no longer needed. It was a baptism of preparation for the Jews, for the Messiah's coming. But now that Jesus has come, get this, Jews don't need to be prepared for the Messiah's coming. They need to participate in His coming. You say, well, what's the challenge with Jews today? The challenge with Jews who reject the, Old Test- reject the New Testament and reject Jesus is they don't need to be preparing for Jesus to come. They need to be participating in the fact that He has come. He's come. He's ruling and reigning in righteousness. He's poured out His Holy Spirit as promised in the Old Testament on His people that they, they can have a mission and they can spread His kingdom to the ends of the earth. God has a plan for those who trust in Jesus. So as Apollos speaks boldly in the synagogue, his message is accurate, but it's incomplete. And as Peterson says, boldness coupled with an inadequate grasp of the word of God can be dangerous. But praise God, his boldness is not an arrogant boldness. And we know this because of what we see in verse 26. What does Apollos do in verse 26? He's corrected and he receives the correction. Get this, the scholar from Alexandria is corrected by the tent makers in Ephesus. No arrogance, no pride. You got something to show me, I'm ready to listen. The humility of Christ is on display here. On the part of Apollos in receiving the correction and on the part of Priscilla and Aquila in how they go about correcting. How did they correct him? Do you see it in verse 26? They took him aside. They don't call him out publicly. They don't seek to tarnish or embarrass Apollos or introduce confusion in the synagogue among the Jews who are listening. They are aware of where they speak their words and the impact that they might have. These are Jesus people acting like Jesus, bringing important clarification without harming the man of Jesus or the message of Jesus among those who still need Jesus. Is that clear? Took him aside. So Apollos humbly receives their explanation of the way of God, which most certainly would have included an explanation of the meaning and the practice of baptism now that Jesus had come. Marita says it this way, I take Luke's mention that Apollos knew only the baptism of John to mean that he did not know about the new covenant baptism practice established by Jesus. Aquila and Priscilla thus needed to explain baptism more accurately, verse 26. Baptism vividly illustrates our union with Jesus in his death and resurrection. It seems to me Apollos understood, believed, and preached the gospel, but he knew nothing of this ordinance in which the use of water preaches the gospel. We need to die to self and be raised in Christ. So what is the lesson for us, church? Say, okay, that's really interesting. That happened in Acts 18. I get it. There was a guy that was preaching Jesus, but he was off on baptism. What can I learn? Here's what we can learn. We must strive for accuracy in our understanding of God's word and its implications for our lives. And... We must humbly give and receive correction 
that is anchored in God's word along the way. We're all going to be corrected. We're all going to be challenged. And it's all going to be built upon who Christ is and what we have learned and what we have in his word. Let's, let's keep reading. Verse 27. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. I just want you to see from 27 and 28 that the word of God rightly explained as a witness to Jesus helps believers stand firm in the face of arguments that undermine Jesus. Did you know there's a lot of people that want to use the Bible to distract you from Jesus rather than point you to Jesus? They want to take the words out of context in the word to make you confused or to doubt that Jesus is Jesus, that Jesus is the Savior, that Jesus is God. Well, how in the world do we defend against that? Well, we read the Bible rightly as a witness to the Christ. In verse 27, Apollos wants to go to Achaia, which is a region where Corinth is located. Why in the world does he want to go to Corinth? Well, remember, Priscilla and Aquila had come with Paul from Corinth, and they were probably like, hey, there's still some Jews in Corinth that need evangelizing, and now that you better understand the Old Testament and this New Testament practice of baptism, why don't you go help them out? We're going to continue to do what we're doing in Ephesus. So he goes back, and the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged Apollos to go. How do they encourage him? With a, a letter of commendation. They send this guy that apparently they don't know, and they're like, well, how, how will we trust this guy? How do we know this guy's legit? Well, they sent him a letter. Sent him along with a letter, urging the brothers and sisters there to welcome him. Did you know that's why, part of the reason why churches still send letters to this day? Right? If you move to Texas, and there's a great Baptist church in Texas, and you're like, I want to be a part of this. This is my family now. This is where God has called me to do ministry in this local context. Well, what you'll do is you'll meet with the pastor, tell them about your conversion to Christ, and at some point they're going to say, well, how do I know any of this is true other than you told me so? And you'd be like, well, I was an active part of North Roanoke Baptist Church for the last 50 years. And um, Well, they'll be like, well, could they send us a letter that tells us that? Be like, sure, we'll be glad to. Why, why did churches do that? Well, because there's a, there's a basis of continuity. There's a, there, there's a basis of relationship and accountability that's been established that one church can testify to and another church can receive. So the same kind of context is happening here. How do we trust this Apollos guy? Well, you can trust him. Here's a letter. We, we can vouch for him. So this letter helps Apollos hit the ground running. They're not like, we need to give you a background check. We need you to be a member for three years before you can open your mouth, right? They're just like, get after it in Jesus' name. If you, can, if you can refute the Jews who are telling us that Jesus isn't the Christ, then go for it. So what does he do in verse 28? He powerfully refutes the Jews in public. The Jews had apparently ridiculed the Christians, and now Apollos shows or proves by the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. The antidote to false religion is reading the Bible as a witness to Jesus. Which means we must not accept false religions that use the Bible as close enough 
just because they sometimes use the Bible. Just because you're nice doesn't mean you're right. Does that make sense? Well, you know, they're so, they're so kind and they ride bicycles everywhere and they don't hurt the environment. Right, but the message they're preaching is sending people to hell. And that's not very nice. So just because you don't drink caffeine doesn't mean that everything's okay. We must never back away from the truth that it is Jesus in our place who saves. Jesus is God in our place. If Jesus is anything less than God in our place, then salvation is not by grace because it isn't God giving us himself. He's giving us someone else. And then we're right back to salvation by works and none of us will ever be good enough to work our way to heaven. We remain dead in our trespasses and sins if Jesus is anyone other than the Jesus predicted and promised in the Old Testament. And therefore, what must we do, church? We must unapologetically proclaim that Jesus is the only and everlasting King anointed by the Father and that we will either be united with Him by faith through the indwelling presence of His Spirit, gladly following His rule and living as His people, or we will be eternally disappointed. Those are the choices. There's no plan B. There's no plan C. It's Jesus or bust. And church, we are desperately in need in this generation of, of raising up some Priscilla's and some Aquila's and some Apollos's. We need as a church to raise up men and women who are ready to go toe to toe with the opposition who know the Bible inside and out, who are mighty in the scriptures, who can go into a corporate boardroom, who can go across the street to their neighbor, who can go around the world and who can prove Christ from the scriptures to the opponents of Christ according to the scriptures better than they can oppose it themselves because they know what they think inside and out and they can show them Jesus. We need to raise up some champions like this. The world is desperately in need of some people who say, where are they refuting Jesus? I'll go right into the thick of that and I will show them Jesus from the scriptures. And there's some people in this room that God will call out to do that. And praise God, we've got resources abundant to help you if God calls you to that. We've got a pastoral team that will work alongside of you. We've got a network of seminaries that we fund. You in the age of online learning, there's no reason or no excuse not to get more training if you want it. Yeah, you can do it. You can apply and take a class, but we need some men and women who are mighty in the scriptures, who can expose Christ from the word such that people will believe on him and not the mess that so many people are trapped in believing. Let's keep reading. Verse 1 of chapter 19. We'll continue through verse 7. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Again, referring to John the Baptist. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, 
They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. What I want us to see uh, in these verses, verses 1 through 7 of 19, is that the word rightly explained as a witness to Jesus leads to conversion to Jesus. It leads to heart change. When we explain the word of God rightly, God uses that to bring people to saving faith in Christ. Apollos was familiar with John the Baptist and had already identified Jesus as the Messiah. But when Paul comes to Ephesus, he finally makes it to Ephesus, he finds some disciples or certain disciples. In other words, disciples of a particular kind, not disciples of Jesus. They're not disciples of Jesus, but of the John the Baptist movement. Have you all ever heard of the John the Baptist movement? I hadn't really heard of it until I studied for this sermon. Uh, Apparently, there were some Jews claiming to follow John the Baptist as late as the 4th century AD. So you got John the Baptist, who comes as the forerunner of Christ, and and as late as the 4th century century AD, there's some Jews who are like, hey, we're following John the Baptist. John the Baptist, if he could have raised from the dead and let him know, he'd be like, hey, uh, the guy you were supposed to follow was Jesus. But there were some benefits of the movement. The first benefit of the movement is that they actually agreed with the need for repentance. They agreed that they didn't just need to try to keep the law better or do more. They, they agreed that they needed a change in their direction of their lives and, and to go from worshiping selves and their selves and idols to worshiping God. And another benefit of the movement is that they were looking for a Messiah. They were supposed to be looking for a Messiah. The downside of the movement is that they tended to reduce their vision of God's kingdom simply to an ethnically Jewish kingdom. And newsflash, Jesus had already come. The Messiah was here. They didn't need to be looking for the Messiah. They needed to look to the Messiah. He had already come and conquered the grave and been installed as the forever king of God, ruling and reigning in righteousness. And they needed to follow him from the heart right now. So when Paul opens with, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say, no, we haven't even heard. We're thinking, which John the Baptist are you following? Right? John the Baptist talked about the Holy Spirit. They said, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. So it's not a very good John the Baptist movement if you haven't heard of the Holy Spirit. Because what did John say in uh, John 1, 33 and 34? He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Of God. So they're ethnic Jews following John the Baptist, but not very well because John the Baptist said there's going to be a Messiah who's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, the Old Testament promises an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon God's people in the end, in, in times when the Messiah comes. Isaiah 44, Ezekiel 36, Joel 2. So these disciples of John are either weak in the Old Testament and John's teaching, or somehow they just missed the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and in the teachings of John. Peterson says this, they are in something of a time warp, not recognizing the coming of the Messiah or the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. 
But here's some good news. Just because people are misguided doesn't mean people can, doesn't mean that God can't save them. Let me say that again. Just because your neighbors or your coworkers are misguided doesn't mean that God can't save them. And sometimes he uses a Christian like Paul asking good questions to do just that. One of my favorite evangelistic strategies is to just ask questions. You're talking to a... I, I was on a plane uh, back from New Orleans on Wednesday. And I was seated next to a Harvard graduate. That's not intimidating. Yeah, so where'd you, where'd you go to school? Uh, Harvard. Great. I went to Virginia Tech. I got agricultural and engineering. Yeah. So um, we start talking, and he was, he was a great guy to talk to. And I learned about his family background, that he's got some folks that are going to, an, his parents go to a non-denominational church, and uh, he's just not sure about this Jesus stuff. And so I just started asking questions. And um, the reality he got to was for centuries before Jesus came, people said, expect a guy that looks a lot like Jesus. And I said, the question you have to deal with is, did Jesus come and did he really rise from the dead? And if Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, then the whole thing's true. And if he's not risen from the dead, then eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, and there's nothing you can do about it. But if Christ conquered the grave, you got a lot to deal with. And he looked at me and he goes, that's a pretty simple way of thinking about it, and you're exactly right. I said, so is Jesus risen from the dead? And he said, I don't know. I said, that's fair. Here's some things to think about. How did the church magically explode on the planet around 1 AD or the first century AD? I don't know. Have you ever seen any other religion explode like that across cultural barriers and languages instantaneously? Have you ever, did Islam ever do that or did it stay restricted to a language and a people group? Stayed restricted to a language and a people group. How about Hindus? It stayed restricted to a language and a people group. How about any other world religion that's out there? It stayed restricted to a culture and a language and a people group. But Christianity is expressed in all kinds of ways with different kinds of music, different kinds of styles, people that know English, people that know Spanish, people that know Hindi, people that know Arabic, all over the world. And like this, Within a, a hundred years, Christianity was overspreading the globe on the fact that Jesus Christ conquered the grave. All they had to do was find a body. People died for the truth that Christ had risen from the dead. Is Christ risen from the dead? And he said, I don't know. And I said, well, I would encourage you to get the answer to that question. Because if Christ is risen from the dead, it's all true. There's no other explanation. Paul keeps asking questions. I want to encourage you, church, to, to ask good questions. And then Paul keeps asking questions, right, in verse 3. And we learn that these disciples had been baptized into John's baptism. They had signified their desire to repent, but they had not believed in the one that John said would 
would be coming. And so Paul is basically saying, look, if you want to follow John, you have to follow Jesus because he's the one he told you to follow. Don't follow John, follow Jesus. They had gotten wet, but they hadn't been changed on the inside, made new by the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus, their substitute. They needed to be converted to Christ. Church, to belong to Jesus, we do not reform ourselves. We don't be nice. We don't be better. We don't make ourselves good enough for God. That is not how you belong to God or belong to Christ. To belong to God, you must be born again, Jesus says in John 3. You must be regenerated, Paul says in Titus 3.5. You must be transformed, Paul says in Colossians 3.10. You must be made new in 2 Corinthians 5.17. How? By the Holy Spirit of God. God himself must make an inward change. I get so nervous at... at not nervous, I get uh, burdened at funerals when I, when I hear the testimony of somebody who's been a member of a church for decades and they pass away tragically and the family's there and I say, tell me about their faith in Jesus. And the answers are, he was a really good guy. He went to church every Sunday. He was sure to pay his tithes. Everybody said he was a great guy at the office. Great. I know a lot of nice people who don't know Jesus, whose hearts have not been changed on the inside from those who serve themselves, even silently, even hiddenly, even quietly, into those who long to glorify the Savior. And this transformation happens by God in the hearing of the gospel. When we surrender our lives to Him, when we give up on being good enough and say, only Christ is good enough, I desire Him as my King. And praise God, when these Disciples of John hear of Jesus, they believed, verse 4. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And what is interesting is that Paul begins by asking about the Spirit, but they have to believe in Jesus to get the Spirit. Do you see that? You don't get the Spirit of God without faith in the Son of God. You can't separate the two. Saving faith in the Lord Jesus is brought about by the saving work of the Spirit of God in our lives. And you've got to believe that Jesus is Lord. Do you all see that word, Lord? Verse 5. When, when we baptize someone, what do we ask them? In whom have you placed your trust? And what do they say? In Jesus Christ, my Lord. That's the word Yahweh from the Old Testament. He is God. He is king. He has all authority. I owe my life and allegiance and everything that I have to him because he gave his life for mine and he conquered the grave for me and he is my hope and my treasure and my delight and my God and my king forevermore. The indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit belongs to those who believe in Jesus Christ the Lord. He belongs to those whose lives are so submerged in the life of Jesus that we live as he lives so that God would be glorified and others might be saved. When it comes to being a Christian, we prize accuracy in 
our understanding of the Scripture, and we also have the presence of the Holy Spirit. In 1 John 4.13, did you know you can be accurate in the Bible and not have the Holy Spirit? There, there will be sword drill champions who do not enter the kingdom of God because they never believed on Christ. And so it's important that we be accurate, but it's also important that we don't bypass the need to be indwelled with the Spirit of God. In 1 John 4, 13, we read this, By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. In this case, Paul lays his hands upon them, and the Spirit comes upon them. And we, we know that this pattern is unusual. This is not typically what we see. Marita says this, The norm is for repentance and faith in Jesus, and the possession of the Spirit, and the visible profession of faith is baptism. But in this moment, what's going on? These converts represented a distinct splinter movement from Judaism, so like the Samaritans that we read about in Acts chapter 8, the Lord is ensuring that these first believers of this splinter movement, interestingly enough, 12 of them in all, are authenticated not just inwardly by the presence of the Spirit, by, but also outwardly by signs of the Spirit. These men go from being certain disciples of John to being true disciples of Jesus Paul lays his hands on them and the Spirit comes. And then like the Jewish converts in chapter 2 of Acts, they speak in tongues, which is known human languages, and they prophesy just like Joel said that they would. And now it is clear to all, these disciples of John have become disciples of Jesus, sent out to proclaim that the Messiah that John promised has come. God has given us his word, church so that we might recognize His Son, so that we might repent of our sin, and that we might run to Him. And this morning, if you don't know King Jesus, the Jesus revealed in the Word, we'd invite you to come. Worship team, if you'd come on up, and I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll stand and sing. God in heaven, thank you for your presence among us today. Thank you for your word, that it's truth, and that you sanctify us in the hearing of your word. God, we pray that we would be a church that never outgrows or thinks that we could outgrow our need to be strengthened in your word. God, we pray that your church would be molded and shaped by a radical obedience to Christ. And God, we ask that anyone here today who's got head knowledge of the Scripture but hasn't been changed at the root of their lives, that your Holy Spirit would convict and draw and bring to saving faith in Jesus Christ the Lord. Have your will and your way among us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.